Find your way to Galatians, the fourth chapter. Galatians chapter 4. Paul, in chapters 3 and 4, has been arguing for his gospel, which is God's gospel. You were saved by faith in Christ alone. It's by God and God alone that we're made right with God. It's all about God. He spent chapters 3 and the lion's share so far, at least, of chapter 4, weaving an airtight doctrinal argument. Then all of a sudden he gave us last week an insight into his own humanity, his spiritual father's heart, his pastoral heart, when he made a plea to them based upon his relationship to them as the one who brought the gospel to the Galatians. And today we find ourselves at the end of chapter 4 and the end of this section of Paul's arguing for the validity of the gospel which he preached was the gospel of grace. Today we read verses 21 through 31, which will serve as the basis for the, te- the message today. 421 of Galatians, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. As at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Always going back to the Scripture, isn't he? And this is what we should always do. What does the Scripture say on any matter? If you have a question about anything, don't go to someone who will merely give you his or her opinion. It's not worth a dime. The only opinion that matters is God's opinion. Paul understood that. Of course, he himself, not knowingly, was writing Scripture under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he goes... And he quotes from the book of Genesis here in the latter part of verse 30. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free man. Who's your daddy? This is a slang rhetorical question, which really... Is confrontational. It's a claim, a boastful claim of dominance by the one who asks the question over the one who hears or the ones who hear the question. It became a very popular part of our culture and will probably be for decades to come, as long as Pedro Martinez is alive at least, 
On September the 4th, 2004, for the second consecutive outing, this Hall of Fame pitcher for the Boston Red Sox had been thrashed by the arch rivals of the Red Sox, the Yankees. And when he was asked the question, how do you explain what's happened the last two games? You've given up 13 runs, 17 hits, and 12 and a third innings. How do you explain it? In a very somber and sober way, he said this, Call the Yankees my daddy. The Yankees dominated him, is what he was saying. He never went to pitch at Yankee Stadium again through the end of his career, which was an illustrious career. He never went there that the crowd did not chant as he began to take the mound. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? As I investigated how this came into our vernacular, this question, who's your daddy? I was surprised and pleasingly surprised it came through the zombies. I'm not talking about the walking dead. I'm talking about the group, the zombies in 1968. What's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? You see the idea of putting down? Well, here's a question that we must ask ourselves from this passage of Scripture. Not who's your daddy, but who's your mother? It's very important that we know if Hagar is our mother or Sarah is our mother. Pay careful attention. It's been suggested by most scholars of the book of Galatians that this is the hardest passage to understand. But don't let that put you off because we're asking the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today and we're trusting Him to enlighten us. The reason it's hard is because too few of us understand the historical background. We don't know the Old Testament like we should. Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when he later wrote, or earlier actually, in Romans 15, he says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. He was talking about the Old Testament. Where do we get our encouragement? Where did Paul get his encouragement? Where did the Romans get their encouragement? From the Old Testament. Look, the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament. Make no mistake about it. We need to understand it. It equips us for the things which we need to be whom God has called us to be. So we need to understand that. The Scriptures. Many today live under the law because they want to be under the law. We might call them legalists. That is to say, they believe the way to God is in keeping God's rules. If I keep enough of His rules, then maybe I can get into heaven. People who are legalists sometimes claim to be Christians. And those people who are legalistic Christians believe that they can prove to themselves and to other people that they really are Christians by doing certain things. False teachers who had invaded the churches of Galatia, they are known as Judaizers. These false teachers had said, we of our, are of our father Abraham. We are of the natural descent. We come, our bloodline flows from Abraham all the way to us. And they said, because of that, Abraham is our father. Let me pause here just a moment. 
It reminds you of something that John the Baptist said to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees had come to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. First of all, he set things on a very positive note when addressing them as they came to be baptized by him. He said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. That's not a nice way to talk about people, is it? He was straightforward with them. That's what they were. Then he said to them, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. These people, Judaizers, took great pride in the fact they were descended from Abraham. In fact, they were banking on their descent from Abraham to make them right with God. Let's stop here just a minute. Are you banking on anybody else except Jesus Christ to make you right with God? You're in for trouble if you are. You're in the middle of trouble. I would go so far as to say you don't know God because you cannot know Him as long as you put anyone or yourself and your good works in front of Jesus Christ or even alongside Jesus or even behind Jesus. Anything but Jesus is impossible to get us into a right relationship with God. So here these Judaizers come to this predominantly Gentile church or churches in Galatia. And they say, look, we got it right because we are descended from Abraham. And we have the mark in our body to prove it. We've been circumcised. And so if you really want to be right, get circumcised. Add to what the gospel says we are to do. And so these influenced young believers, they were babies in Christ. We don't have any idea what that would have been like. They had no biblical background to speak of except what they'd gotten from Paul. They were woefully weak in the Word of God, understanding things about Abraham. They had some understanding, I'm sure, because Paul had taught them. But look, this is what else they were doing. We know this as we study through the book. They were adding to circumcision. They said, just in case we want to prove that we are truly, truly Christians, we're going to add to our circumcision. We're going to add that we're going to keep all the festivals, all the feast days. We're going to keep every new moon. We're going to be sure we keep every Sabbath because we're going to prove what good Christians we are. And we're going to know that that will approve us more to God. God will accept us more if we do these things to add to what Jesus has done. There are those in the church today who believe their security is based on strict observance of the regulations, the traditions, and the ceremonies of Judaism. Not so. Paul, in this passage, refutes Judaizers On their own turf. How does he do that? Look at verse 21. Tell me, you want to be under law. Do you not listen to the law? In other words, where have you been? You are proclaimers of the law, but just understand you have not really heard what the law says about this whole matter. of salvation. And then he goes into the description of Abraham and his two sons and the mothers of his two sons, and how those two sons were born. 
quite different. Mothers different. We're going to see just how in just a moment. But also different in terms of their conception and their birth. We need to understand, if we're going to understand the Bible at all, the two covenants that are the leading covenants in Scripture. We need to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and man by which God makes a man or a group of people his man or his people and promises to be his God or their God. It's a binding covenant. It's binding upon God as well as upon man. We're going to get to the two covenants that we need to understand in some detail in just a moment. There are three stages in Paul's argument in this paragraph for the gospel that he preached. And the first has to do with the historical background found in verses 22 and following. Let's read 22 and 23 together. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Who were Abraham's sons? Firstly, at the age of 86, he had a son named Ishmael. And secondly, at the age of 100, he had the child of promise, his son Isaac. Now let's back up just a moment. Who was the mother of Ishmael? Hagar, the mother. And by the way, who was she in terms of her person? She was a bond woman. That means she was a slave. She probably had been a slave her entire life. We don't know that for sure. But she was a slave. Now, who was the mother of Isaac? Sarah. And what is she? She is a free woman. Please keep these things in mind when we get to the next section. There's a double descent which is mentioned in these two verses that we just read. One is literal and physical. Descent from Abraham, literally and physically, that is represented by Ishmael. There's the figurative descent, spiritual and figurative, represented in Isaac. Both had the same father. Both had different mothers. Their mothers were different in the ways in which I've already mentioned. Hagar, the slave woman. Sarah, the free woman. Here's a second difference. They were born in different ways. Did you notice this in verse 23? The child of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? It means the birth of Ishmael was the work of man in a way. It was something that could be explained naturally. But the birth of Isaac was different. It was a supernatural birth. In the book of Hebrews 11.11, there's a beautiful statement about Sarah. The scripture says, By faith, Sarah herself received the power, suggesting there was no power, the power to conceive. For she was past the time. In other words, menopause had come and gone. Thank the Lord. It had come and gone for her. But she was beyond the years of being able to conceive. But by faith, what did she do? She received the power to believe how. The same way you and I receive the power to have faith and believe. Because the Scripture says, since she considered Him to be faithful, 
who had made the promise. Who might that be? God. Is God faithful? The Bible says, if we are faithless, God is faithful. The Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Has he promised, and will he not fulfill it? The Bible says, God cannot lie. So, here we see this way in which Isaac was born. Not by the flesh, in the sense of depending upon man solely, but it was something that was supernatural. Abraham 100, Sarah 90. We are in one of two realms. Either we're living in slavery, and this is all mankind. Either we're living in slavery, or we're living in freedom. Jesus, remember when He spoke to these Jews in John 8? Remember? What they said to Him very indignantly, they said to Him, uh, We have never been slaves. We are from Abraham. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Of course, they were not willing to admit that they were sinners. It's a beginning point for getting saved, by the way. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you don't need saving. But if you realize you're lost, you need to be saved. You become a person who believes in the supernatural work of God. To transform people's lives. So we have this double descent. Now listen carefully before we move on to the second stage of the argument here in the latter part of chapter 4 of Galatians. Listen carefully. The Jews of Paul's day believed the covenant with Abraham made them safe. But here's what we see. And listen, this flies in the face of a lot of what you may have been taught or believed along the way. But... You'll see it borne out as we look carefully at the whole book of Galatians. True descent from Abraham is not physical, but it is spiritual. True children of Abraham are those who believe as Abraham believed and obey as Abraham obeyed. Keep your place here and turn back over to Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter in which Paul writes about Father Abraham. Extensively. Let's look at verse 16. For this reason is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law. In other words, not only those who are descended from Abraham, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We have to have faith like Abraham. And Haven't we seen in Galatians 3 already, verse 8, that the Scripture, God preached, Christ preached the Gospel to Abraham when He said, all the nations will be blessed through you. It's through us who know Christ that we share Christ with others and it's as if God is speaking through us too just as surely as He spoke through Abraham when we share Jesus Christ and the claims of Jesus. We cannot claim to belong to Abraham unless we belong to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Look at Galatians 3.29 for a moment, just to remind you, to jog your memory. 
Look at 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. I think that's pretty categorical, don't you? Unless you belong to Jesus, you are not a descendant of Abraham. And flip that. If I am spiritually a descendant of Abraham, I belong to Jesus. That's absolutely necessary for you and me to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's the argument regarding the historical background. Now let's consider the argument contained in the allegorical section here. What is an allegory? It's a story in which specific people, places, and events have deep spiritual truths embedded in them. So let's begin looking again at Galatians 4. 24. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. Now, I told you I was going to come back to this concept of the two covenants. What are the two covenants? There's the old covenant. Through whom did the old covenant come? Moses. What was the old covenant all about? It was about the law. And it was about man's responsibility. This is why throughout the Old Covenant we hear these kinds of commands. Thou shall, thou shall not. It's about our responsibility to God. What's the other covenant? It's the New Covenant. What do we call it? We call it the New Testament. We call the Old Covenant the Old Testament. That's why our Bibles are divided into two Testaments. Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament. What is the New Testament covenant? Who brought the New Testament covenant to us? Jesus did. Did he not? He certainly did. And it was for those who are both Jewish in their natural descent and those of us who are Gentiles in our natural descent as well. These two women stand for the two covenants. Hagar stands for the Old Covenant. Sarah, for the New Covenant. Are you getting the picture? Do you see how these individuals stand for something else that's very important in Paul's argument? He says in the middle of verse 24, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children. Now this has reference to Hagar because it was on Mount Sinai in the Arabic Peninsula that the law was given on Mount Sinai and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. He's talking here about the city of Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see in a moment, he's also talking about Hagar is not merely being the one who is representative of the Old Covenant, but also the one who is representative of the present Jerusalem. Now, let's stop here just a moment. Have any of you ever heard or read what the Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Have you ever heard that? Sure you have. Every once in a while while I'm listening to KOP, there'll be an advertisement coming on, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and certainly we should do that. But what is really said in that statement is pray not just for the city of Jerusalem. The city is the capital. It's the hub. And it was even more central in the life of the Jews in Paul's day than we can ever imagine because the temple was there. 
But really, when we are called upon by the Old Testament writer in the book of Psalms to pray for Jerusalem, we're called upon to pray for all of Israel. Pray for the peace of Israel. Shalom of Israel. So, this is astonishing. This would have stunned those Judaizers, those who were descendants of Abraham, who had come so arrogantly and looked down their snooty noses and said, basically, who's your daddy? Abraham's our daddy. Who's your daddy? And all of a sudden, it's beginning to dawn on them as they're hearing this read, what Paul is saying about them. You're the present Jerusalem. And as we're going to work our way through here, what they're going to see is, and Ishmael is your daddy. We don't have any idea how angry that would make a person who took great pride in his or her natural descent from Abraham. But that's what's being said here. Ishmael is your daddy. Ishmael, representative of the law and of man's efforts to get right with God by his own power as opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant where we are made right not by our own power but by God's promise and our trust in his power to set us free from the law of sin and law of death. So, as we consider this a little more completely, let's read a bit further in verse 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabian corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is slavery in slavery with her children. So the new Jerusalem's enslaved. Now look what he says in contrast, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So Sarah is represented not only by what? By the new covenant, but she's also representative of what? The Jerusalem above. Have you ever noticed as you've read through the New Testament how Paul will write, for instance, in Ephesians 2, that we who know Christ have been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus? Where are we now? We're in El Paso, Texas, in the United States of America. But where are we really now? We are part of the new Jerusalem above. We know it's going to come in reality at the end, but it's already being built, believe me. We are living stones, the Bible says in First Peter chapter 2. Stone upon stone, God is building out of us in creating this new Jerusalem. It is phenomenal to think about. And she is our mother, this new Jerusalem. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman. And this is a quotation from Isaiah 51.4, the background of which it was written to the exiles in Babylon. They had become bereft of their city, Jerusalem, their nation, Israel. They were, in effect, slaves. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, speaking to Judah in exile. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And this is referring to when they got back from exile, there was going to be greater fruit born. And what Paul does under the leadership of the Holy Spirit picks this verse out of Isaiah 51.4 and uses it to show us the difference between the present Jerusalem, which is based on law. It's full of legalists who are 
trying to work their way into heaven and prove how much better they are than everybody else who is in the kingdom of God because they do all this, 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 and this. And what God is saying here to the Galatian believers and to us today is that the real fruit is found in the new covenant. The real fruit is found in living by faith in the promise of God and trusting Christ to do His work through us who know Him. So let me quickly summarize this. Get in your mind, mind's eye, a heading. On one side, you have slavery. On the other side, you have freedom. On one side, you have Hagar. Hagar is a slave. On the other side, you have Sarah. Sarah is free. On this side, you have Ishmael, the son of Hagar. And Ishmael is born according to flesh. That is, it's about a work. It took a work of man that most men could see happen through them. On the other side, you have Isaac. And it was a supernatural work. It's a gift from God. Isaac was a gift from God. There's no other way to explain it because of the physical condition of both Abraham and Sarah, his wife. On the other side, you have, under the slavery side, Sinai, which is a covenant of law with works, the principal expression. On the other side, you have the covenant of promise. On this side, you have the present Jerusalem, which was representative of the Judaizers, those who were these false teachers who were saying you've got to add something to what Christ has done. On this side, instead of the present, you have the future or the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's representative of being people who are people of faith and grace and promise. All right. Let's ask this question of ourselves before I forget to raise it again. Who is your mother? Is Hagar your mother? Or is Sarah your mother? Are you depending upon your own goodness to get you into heaven? Are you depending on the promise of God that He will do what He says He will do when we trust completely in Him and give Him control? Of our lives. Here's the last section. Personal application. Begins with a great statement. Look at verse 28. And you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. So if we know Jesus, regardless of whether we're direct descendants of Abraham or some pagan, what does that mean? We are what? Children of promise. We are the product of the promise which God made to whom? To Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6. That's what it means. We are sons by supernatural, not natural birth. Therefore, like Isaac, we should expect the same treatment that Isaac received from Ishmael, and the same treatment he received from Abraham. So how did Ishmael treat Isaac? Well, let's read this passage in verse 29. But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him 
who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. So I'm going to go back to the 17th chapter of Genesis. If you want to join me there, you're welcome to. If not, just listen in. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Genesis 17, 9. God said further to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. You see, circumcision was a sign between God and Abraham about the covenant. Now, the New Testament sign, I believe, is baptism. We baptize to say we belong to God through Jesus Christ. We identify ourselves as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's move down the page a little bit. And look at verses 18 and following. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Do you think Abraham loved Ishmael? By all means, he loved him dearly. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have... I will... I have heard you, behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now let's go to chapter 21. Fast forward a bit. And what we're going to see is what happened in response to this promise and command of the Lord. Genesis 21, verse 10. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, Drive out this maid, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. She seems like a petulant woman here, doesn't she? Wasn't it she who gave Hagar to Abraham? Well, yeah. Look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Namely, his son Ishmael. Remember, he loved him dearly. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. He reassures him at this point, doesn't he? And so early in the morning he arose, took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. This seems harsh, but it shows us, and by the way, God took care of them. We know that. And fulfilled his promise to Ishmael. He became a powerful man in this realm, in the natural. But what about this relationship of Judaizers to the believers in the church at Galatia. There was so much at stake. And those people needed to be cast out, is what the Scripture says. And what we should have, could have looked at is that in the story of Ishmael and 
Isaac when the time came for Ishmael to watch his little three-year-old brother be weaned. Ishmael was 17. And of course, Isaac was three, about the age of weaning. He mocked him, is what the scriptures say. He made fun of him. He did. And this tells us what will happen and does happen to us who are followers of the idea represented by Isaac. New Testament people, New Covenant people. This is what it says to us. It says we can expect to be ridiculed by our half-brothers. I'm not talking about Jewish people here. I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians. Do you know where the most powerful persecution in the world has come throughout church history upon the true church of Jesus Christ? Do you know where it came from? It has come from, watch this, Christians. Think about it. Who were Jesus' biggest opponents? They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? They were the most religious people on earth. Jesus' biggest persecutors. What about Paul? Who dogged Paul? Who were at the forefront of getting Paul run out on a rail many times, stoning him and different things from the different cities he went? Who were they? They were descendants of Abraham, right? Do you know during the so-called Dark Ages, there were people who knew Jesus and loved him and spread the gospel through him? And do you know who they found at their throats who issued decrees to have them persecuted ruthlessly and killed in many cases. They were part of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church. And you know, today, we who are evangelicals in the United States, we who know Jesus and we preach Christ, we really bother people who are mainliners who say, those people are outdated. They believe in the Bible. They believe that people are saved by grace through faith, and not, not of themselves. Those people are nutty. They're in the dark ages. Well, I'd like to stay in the dark ages. I'm not. I'm in the enlightened age. The Bible says people who don't know Christ, the minds of their hearts have been darkened. So we need not make apology. We need not be strident in our comments to them. But we need to be persistent and consistent in what we believe and stand up for that, which we know to be true. How about Abraham's treatment of Isaac? We know how Ishmael treated Isaac. He persecuted him. We, If we're going to preach the gospel, the, the New Testament gospel, then we can expect to be mistreated. Jesus prepared his apostles for that, and he prepares us for that. But how did Abraham treat his son Isaac? Well, he gave him the inheritance, didn't he? He listened to God. He did the thing that was difficult. Now look at verse 31. So then, brothers, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Wow. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to the ears of the Judaizers? Ooh, but don't you know it was so breathtaking when the Galatian believers heard this, that you are for real. Why? 
because you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, as I conclude, there are two statements I want to make. They're very important for us. I'm going to elaborate on each one. The first of which is this. We who are in the new covenant, we experience God's grace. And His grace, as the song says, is enough. And that short sells grace. It's more than just enough. It's everything. The grace of God is everything to us. Paul said to his son in the faith, Timothy said, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To Paul, he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Ishmael's religion is what man can do. Nature, keeping the law, and it's an enslavement. Isaac's religion is what God has done for us by the Spirit, through grace, and there is freedom where the grace of God is. Christianity is not a natural religion. It is a supernatural life that comes to us when we trust in Jesus Christ alone. Here's a second statement, and listen carefully. Weigh this carefully. Submit what I'm going to say to the Word of God. We who are Gentiles, not in any way descended from Abraham, we who have received Christ by grace through faith, we too inherit the Old Testament promises. We are Abraham's seed. Just to jog your memory, we've looked at it once, but some of you missed it. It's worth looking at it again if you got it the first time. Look at 329 again. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. you know what the word descendants literally is in the original language? Seeds. We are Abraham's seeds. Can you imagine that? That's what the Scripture teaches us. We who know Jesus, who are Gentiles, we are Abraham's seed. And by the way, this applies to Jewish people too. Jewish people, if they're going to have real life, can only have it in Jesus Christ because He is the way, the truth, and the life. If I'm not mistaken, is that right or not? And how does a man or woman get to God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through whom? Me. Jesus is the way. It doesn't matter what your natural history is. It's through Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I would say. That we are children... A promise. We just saw that a moment ago. Let's read it again, just for reinforcement. Verse 28. And you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. How sweet that sounds. To the ears of a man or a woman. Who knows how lost he or she was. And then Jesus found you. Gave you the promise of eternal life. You claimed the promise. And you were born again. Here's the third promise. That we are children of the free woman. Verse 31 again. So then, brothers, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. What does that mean? Hey, we're free. We're going to see just how free that life is next week when we look at chapter 5, the first part 
chapter 5. We're free. Amen. What a wonderful thing. And then, here's another thing. We are citizens of the true Jerusalem. 426. Look at it. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. We are free. We're members of the Jerusalem above. Now, it's the church of Jesus Christ. That's right. And this might shock some people in the room, but we are the Israel of God. Am I making that up? No. Look at verse 16, Galatians 6. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. We are Israel of God. Not just we who come from Gentile heritage, but all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile. Because remember, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then lastly, in Philippians 3.3, Paul says about the Philippians who, like the Ephesians, like the Galatians rather, were Gentiles for the most part, far and away. You are the true circumcision, he said. Wow. It's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? We have inherited the promises of God in both Testaments. They're ours. If salvation is by grace, then we of the church of Jesus Christ cannot tolerate salvation by the law, by works. There's only one way a man or woman can be saved, and that is by the grace of God. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a, a, a legalist who kind of surfaces in your heart every once in a while. Do you get that every once in a while? Surface engine in your heart. Surface in your heart. I remember as a boy, I was raised in a wonderful church, preached the gospel, but it was a legalistic church. And I remember signing a pledge in vacation Bible school. We had two week long vacation Bible schools. Can you imagine? We have a hard time getting enough people to come and work for three days, much less two weeks. It was a different day. It was a good day in a lot of ways. But I saw this pledge on my book. If we near the end of the two weeks, it says, I promise I will never drink alcohol or smoke. So I wrote that down. I made a pledge. I made a pledge to God. I took it seriously. I went through life and I, I thought, man, I never took a drink in my life. And I still haven't. Get it? I got that legalist still in there. Still have. But you know, that was kind of a legalistic thing that I was given to do, although I'm glad it was put before me and I took it seriously. I'm glad I'm not a drinker. I thought about how much money I have saved in my lifetime. <laughs> my grandfather died of lung cancer at the age of 59. He was a stalwart human being. He was a leader in his community, probably the most prominent man in his entire county in West Tennessee. Died what I would call prematurely because he smoked. He called me into the living room when he found he had terminal cancer. Long before the days of chemo, really rather primitive forms of radiation treatment was awful. When he went through cobalt treatments, it just ruined him worse than he would have been ruined by the disease, in my opinion. But he said, Mike, sit down here. He said, I'm not going to live, it looks like. And he only lived three months after he was diagnosed. 
with lung cancer. Gone to his brain already. He said, son, I want you to promise me you'll never smoke a cigarette. I said, Papa, I promise you. I love that man. I've done anything he asked me to do, I think. I'm glad I never smoked a cigarette. I've confessed to you all I've smoked grapevines. That's the closest I've ever come to (laughs) cigarettes. I'm glad I never smoked a cigarette. You cannot say from Scripture that a person is sinning if he or she drinks alcohol. But what I learned as I matured spiritually was this about the consumption of alcohol. I learned that I have a responsibility not to cause someone else to stumble in their walk with God. That became the reason I don't drink alcohol. I mean, I don't want to make a younger less mature brother or sister in Christ to stumble because that person might have a weakness for alcohol and say, well, if he can, and he's a leader, I sure can. But it would be the downfall. And remember what the Scripture says? Woe to you who make one of these little ones stumble. It's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That's strong language, isn't it? So, That has been the thing that's motivated me. And that's what motivates a child of Abraham. Because we want to help people experience the best of life. Do we not? Not something inferior. So, if you can drink in good conscience and know that it's not going to bother somebody else, that's between you and the Lord. Smoking cigarettes is another thing, I think, because... Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I could make that case for alcohol consumption too. Because every time you take some alcohol into your body, you destroy brain cells. I want every one I can keep at this point in life. I don't know about you, but I do. Well, who's your daddy? Who is the one who makes a boastful claim of dominance to you? The better question is, who's your mother? Is it Sarah and you have freedom? Or is it Hagar and you're a slave to the sin of legalism? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day, the opportunity to worship you today. And we're asking you now by your spirit to take this word that you've given and you would use it to set people free so they could become the persons you want them to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.